is an independent journalist and producer from Los Angeles. She has written and produced work for Knock LA, NPR, Vice, The Daily Beast, The LA Times, Los Angeles Magazine, and MTV. This year, Cerise created a 15-part investigative series exposing more than five decades of abuse, terror, and murder carried out by gangs within the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. Cerise's work on the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department gangs epitomizes legal research for the people. Enjoy! My name is Cerise Castle. I use she, her pronouns, and I am a reporter. I cover a lot of different topics, but for the past year, my focus has been deputy gangs inside of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. And can you tell us a little bit about these deputy gangs? Like, what are they and what are they called? How do you get into them? Yeah. So a deputy gang essentially functions um, just like any other criminal gang as defined under the California Penal Code. That is a group of people that share a common tattoo, a hand sign, um, and are involved as a group in a wide range of criminal offenses. And they function essentially just like a street gang. The only difference is that these gang members and associates are funded by taxpayers and given license to commit a wide range of crimes. Um, so that's like trespass, um, murder, assault, things like that. So, you know, of course, in your career now as a journalist, you had to do a lot of legal research to find the information that you were able to compile. So one of my questions is like, how did you find this information? Like, where did you search for it? So I got interested in deputy gangs as a child. It was something that um, I had heard about pretty frequently from other kids um, on the playground, from teachers, from my older brother, from my mom, just sort of, you know, watch out for deputy gang members. They're generally white men with bald heads um, that those are probably Vikings um, and just, you know, keep an eye out for them. And that was always something that intrigued me. Um, You know, growing up, we would also have police officers coming into the schools and telling us to stay away from gangs. So it was just interesting to me that there were gangs inside of the police department itself. And, you know, growing up as I did, um, I grew up in a low-income Black family and I was involved in with child services in the system. So I had, you know, a frequent amount of contact with law enforcement and it was established pretty early on in my life that law enforcement is corrupt and dangerous and to be avoided at all costs. And it fascinated me that within law enforcement, like I knew that they were sinister, but knowing that they were operating like a criminal enterprise, like a gang, that just really intrigued me. And I've always been a really naturally curious person. I've really, I've, I've loved to read my whole life. I've always been sort of a nerd, um, a proud nerd nonetheless. Um, so I would go to the library and try to find out information about these deputy gangs, but there wasn't really anything there. I would find articles scattered um, across the years, but never anything really comprehensive, uh, doing a deep dive into who they were, what they were doing, and why. 
And it was a question that I kept coming back to, but never really got any solid answers for most of my life. So fast forward to the summer of 2020, I was working at a local radio station here in Los Angeles, and I was covering the uprisings that were breaking out across the city in response to the murder of George Floyd. And in the course of doing my job reporting throughout the day, I was shot with a less lethal munition by law enforcement. And the resulting injuries from that accident, that event, I was placed um, on bed rest. I had my foot in a cast. I was using crutches and I couldn't really get around in a normal way that I had been accustomed to for the past, you know, most of my life. Um, and I couldn't, I couldn't work. And I didn't want to just be still in that moment. I felt that it was really important for me as a journalist, um, as a Black journalist, as a Black queer journalist to be engaged in that moment doing my job. So a few days after I was shot, um, a young man named Andres Guardado was killed by deputy sheriffs in the Compton area. And it came out pretty quickly after Andres was killed that these two deputy sheriffs were prospects to a deputy gang called the Executioners. And once that came out, um, I was really moved and I decided that, you know, this, I, I had been asking questions about deputy gangs for my entire life. Like this seemed like the moment to really make the most of my time just being stuck in the house to start asking questions and start doing an investigation. Um, as it so happened, I had recently completed a investigative reporting course that was offered by the Ida B. Wells Society. And I took everything that I learned in that six-week course and began investigating. Um, the first important and the most important thing that I turned up in the course of my investigations was a document prepared by county council for Los Angeles, which is a list of litigation of all the cases related to deputy gangs that have been filed. And it lists the amount of money in settlements that um, it has cost taxpayers as well as the deputy gang themselves that are affiliated with the case. That list totaled about $55 million in settlement payments, and it listed, I think, about 10 gangs. And once I had that, that was my map, essentially, to finding out who these deputy gangs were and who they had killed, who they had assaulted, and whose lives they had ruined. And using that, I was able to find more cases. I was able to get in contact with attorneys who told me about other cases. And all that research I compiled eventually came to be the series, A Tradition of Violence, 50 Years of Deputy Gangs in the LA County Sheriff's Department. So you mentioned kind of like the roadmap, um, which, you know, listed all the cases and settlements and et cetera. How did you access that? Or like, was it luck or was it like persistence? Like, I'm just wondering how you came across that. Yeah. So I came across that really just um, having a lot of time on my hands and being bored. They save all of these meetings that 
are had to discuss topics of this, right? So at the board of supervisors meetings, at civilian oversight commission meetings, um, those are really the two bodies that discuss this sort of thing in a public forum on a regular basis. So I was just going back and looking at agendas and watching, you know, the meetings for these related things. And I saw that a motion had been passed at the board of supervisors to have county council look in to you know, litigation related to deputy gangs. So I filed a California public records request, you know, asking for that information. And many months later, I got that response. But once I did, it was like, okay, here is my starting point. And that is the point that I started shopping the story around, trying to get some buy-in from a publisher because there wasn't any way I was going to be able to do this like myself on my own dime. It's incredibly expensive to just access public records, um, like, you know, going and getting court files, just searching for a case that costs money. And that adds up really quickly. We spent about $4,000 reporting this out. And that just wasn't something that I was able to do myself at that point. So you mentioned that the document uh, mentioned 10 gangs. Is that like how many gangs would you say there are? Are there is the number perhaps just unknown because there is not enough information? Like what would be your guesstimate on that? There are at least 18. Um, and I, I know that there are more. I've heard anecdotally about more. I can prove that there are at least 18 um, and there are probably many more. So what was it like going through court filings and depositions? Like, I can't really imagine having a stack of, I think you said 100,000 pages of information. Was it like a mining mission? That's my estimate. Yeah, <laughs> it was. Um, I mean, like I said, I've always been like pretty nerdy. So I really enjoy that kind of stuff. I was really excited to learn legal terms and get a better understanding of how um, civil cases like this work up close. Um, so I started off by having a meeting with an attorney that I know and just sort of getting a crash course in how to use PACER and how to just sort of like call for important documents when looking at a, a docket and that sort of thing. And really just like understanding if you're coming in um, with like no legal experience, it's really hard to make sense of that stuff. So the first couple of weeks was really just educating myself on how to make sense of everything. From that point, it was spending hours and hours. I stopped working um, pretty quickly after I started this. Um, so this is what I was doing for like, gosh, like 10 to 12 hours a day. This was literally all I was doing. I was reading um, dockets and filings and watching The Shield. It was like really <laughs> living in this space. Yeah. I mean, what really, I mean, overall, what I can say about that experience was just, it was a lot of horrific stuff to take in. Um, you know, with these filings, there are photos of injuries that people have. You can watch some of the video depositions and really awful things are said. It was really, I got to be intimately familiar with just how much rot there is inside of the sheriff's department. And it was really disturbing to see that so up close. Yeah, especially after your own police brutality incident. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was just kind of like, obviously, you know, this, it's hard us stuff to sift through and like sit through and navigate. And 
obviously a lot of the times uh, with civil lawsuits, I, one of my questions with that is sort of like wondering how the families feel about the outcome, um, you know, because you talked about sort of like that the department settles. Um, so I'm just wondering if you've had an opportunity to speak to families about sort of their feelings about the civil lawsuits and the outcome of them. I think the civil lawsuits are complicated. I mean, to say the least, I mean, you can't really, it's it's sort of like a payoff for losing a family member. I think for a lot of the families, you know, they'll, they'll accept the settlement um, because the county is really persistent with litigating these cases to death um, and carrying on for years and years and years and never backing down. And I can understand that like living through that again and again for years at a time can become you know, too much for people, especially when there's a chance that you're not going to get anything if it does go to a jury and they don't find in your favor. So I think it can make sense for a lot of people to settle. Of course, the trade-off with that is, is it limits the amount of information that can come out. You know, if they settle for the most part, things that are under sealed remain that way. And of course, you you don't hear from people on the stand and some some questions are never asked. But I think overall, I mean, even though they they may settle or accept um, or like or win some sort of award, that's really like not even half the battle. What they really want is for these deputies and law enforcement officers is for them to be you know removed from the force to be charged criminally with murder, with manslaughter, those sorts of things. So with the 52 million or however much got paid out that you saw, where did the money come from? Yeah. So in my reporting, I found that it was at least 100 million in just settlement awards alone. That's not including, you know, attorney's fees for both the county and for um, the uh, survivors of um, deputy violence, um, deputy gang violence. Um Quite, quite a bit of money. And this is paid by county taxpayers. It's, yeah, it's a really, it's really sort of, it's like a well-oiled machine that just sort of exists. It does not come from the sheriff depart- sheriff's department budget. It comes for the most part from the county's discre- discretionary spending fund. Um, so this is really coming out of, you know, my pocket, your pocket, and the sheriff's department isn't really facing any real consequences. We pay for their attorneys as well. The only one that's really facing any consequences are the taxpayers who are essentially paying off these families who have lost a relative. Yeah, you mentioned, um, you know, that the families, an ideal or not an ideal, but a better outcome for them would be for not a better outcome, but, you know, something that they want is for the deputies to sort of be removed and to them for them to be criminally charged. And I'm wondering how often does that happen? Does that happen at all? It doesn't, are, are, okay. it doesn't happen. Yeah. I, to my knowledge, no deputy like both, gang like associate um, for, for killing a person. Yeah. I, I, I guess I'm saying, um, are, are they ever removed? You're saying no, they're never removed from? Not in any of the cases that I looked at in my series, no. Um, there are currently okay. two Banditos associates, um, and I believe one of them is a alleged tattooed member. 
are currently um, on trial now um, as we speak for a assault that took place during um, an arrest and for lying about that arrest, but nothing to my knowledge as far as um, a deputy being charged um, for killing a resident of the county. No, not to my knowledge, at least in the scope of time that I looked at um, in my series, which was from 1970 through 2021. A lot of those people are still getting pensions from us. Yes. Yes, they are. One of the most upsetting things that I read in your series was that some of the settlement money went back into the sheriff's department in one of the cases, like 1.5 million for reforms. So I guess maybe we can switch to talking about prison abolition and reform. And because we're talking about all these costly lawsuits that didn't get anywhere, um, do you ever worry about like focusing on the bad apples of LASD and not the systemic problem of law enforcement in general? I think that a lot of what's happening at the LA County Sheriff's Department is really um, emblematic of what's happening in a lot of other places. I've heard from people in small towns and cities across the United States who have read my series and said, you know, that's exactly what's happening here. LA tends to be a trend-setting place for a lot of things. And unfortunately, it appears that we've set the trend for gangs and law enforcement as well. So, and, and I hope that this reporting can, you know, inspire people in other municipalities to do similar work. And I hope that people, you know, tap in in other places as much as they appear to have tapped in here with this reporting and this um, advocacy that needs to be done. What would be your ideal outcome or like, you know, all the work you're doing, let's say in an ideal world where someone's like, I can grant you all your wishes or whatever. Like what, what would be the ideal for you in terms of the sheriff um, situation? Well, I mean, like as a journalist, I'm not really sure. I haven't really like reported too much on proposed solutions. As a citizen, as a taxpayer of LA County, I think that I, I think at the minimum there needs to be a third party investigation into the sheriff's department. I think probably the best thing to do would be to get rid of it. I mean, we did it in Compton when there was um, abuse and you know just sort of rampant like awful things happening, um, and the Compton police was disbanded and. We, they were replaced with the um, county sheriff's department, ironically. Um, but I think perhaps the time has come to do it again. It's been, you know, 50 years of deputy gangs, and that's awful. Um, police law enforcement shootings are continuing to go up in Los Angeles County. Our sheriff is now openly defying the law and celebrating his decisions to do such on Fox News. I yeah, I, I don't know if we can come back from this. I don't know. Perhaps the time has come to start anew. Yeah, let's talk about Alex Villanueva because I remember his election being kind of like an exciting time where people thought that things were going to change in the sheriff's department. And now he's getting everyone to wear cowboy hats and sort of <laughs> celebrating. Um, well, I don't know what he's celebrating, kind of like the posse origin of sheriffs. Um, so I know a lot of people yeah. are pushing for his impeachment. Do you think that's going to fly? 
Impeachment, no, but I, I don't think he will be reelected. I think that we will probably see new blood in the sheriff's um, sheriff's position. Whether that is whether or not that is going to be another person that is associated or an alleged member of deputy gangs remains to be seen. To my knowledge, there is only one person that is not has not either been accused of being in a gang or killed someone running for sheriff, which really says a lot about the state of the department and where we are as a county with the department. Um, so I, I myself am eagerly um, looking forward to the 2022 election cycle to really get underway um, and see what what comes of June 2022 and the primary. So Villanueva is associated with the gang? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would say he's a gang associate. He's overseen, um, you know, at least, um, oh gosh, I want to get this number right. When was he elected? 2018. Mm-hmm. So Villanueva is definitely an associate. I mean, he's overseen at least four deputy gang um, killings since he has been elected. And he's had full knowledge of this. He's spoken about it candidly at the Board of Supervisors meetings and in his Instagram lives that he does every week. So, yes, I mean, he's the he's the head of the department. I think he is 100% liable for what these criminal groups are doing. Do you think that is also what complicates sort of the ability for there to be accountability, like the fact that the people who are in the highest positions are somewhat implicated, like, does that contribute to, you know, none of the deputies being removed, none of them being charged? Like, what do you, what what do you think about that? Yeah. Okay. So going back to 1970, the gang culture was really enshrined and became one with LS. Um, LSD culture, hilarious. LASD culture. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. So if we look back to 1970, the people that were accused of being in the first deputy gang that we know of, the Red Devils, they were put on this list and they weren't disciplined. They were promoted and they were moved out to news stations where they were able to continue training the younger generation that is coming in with these with gang culture. And so we see at the East LA station a few years later, you know, the next crop of gang members in the cavemen. And then after them, we now have the banditos. Um, you know, some some of the Red Devils were moved to the South Los Angeles area. And that's where we saw the birth of the Vikings and then later the Regulators and the Grim Reapers and these days the Spartans and the Executioners. So, you know, you to, to move up in the Sheriff's Department, you really have to become a gang member. You have to be okay with these sorts of practices and you have to buy into them. The people that are tattooed gang members, those are the people that are the most respected in the department. They are the people that everyone wants on their team because they're seen as these hard-charging cops that will do anything it takes and really anything, bend the line, you know, break the law, anything to close a case and put away a quote-unquote criminal. A lot of these so-called criminals 
aren't guilty of anything um, apart from being, you know, a person of color in a low income neighborhood. Targeting those people is is rewarded by the sheriff's department. It's encouraged. Um, it's a practice that they call hunting. And that's the modus operandi of these gangs is to, you know, make your station, you know, be the best station, have the most arrests, have the most quote unquote bad guys off the street. And, you know, it's seen in how it's alleged that you have to, you know, join a gang that's, falsifying paperwork, um, you know, pursuing people and killing them. It's, 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 it's a, it's a gang. It's, it's crime. Um, I, I don't know another way to describe it. You mentioned, um, sort of we what we both know or we all know that you know race is implicated um especially like black people um being murdered at disproportionate rates across the country um by police officers uh so sort of i wanted to speak about that um about how white supremacy interacts with the lasd gangs and how you see it functioning within the gangs um i know that one of the gangs for example is uh wayside whiteys uh, so sort of like maybe talk more about white supremacy and sort of how you see it playing out in the gangs. And just for anyone that, you know, in the future might be listening to this and um, how, how would you define white supremacy? I would say that white supremacy is the exaltation of whiteness as a concept um, above all else. All of these gangs, I would say, with the exception being the Buffalo Soldiers, which are alleged to be a group of all Black deputies, all of these gangs were really built on white supremacy and the ideals of white supremacy. All of these gangs target low-income people of color, whether they are gangs that are primarily um, made up of um, Latino men because um, they do not allow women, they do not allow um, genderqueer people, they do not allow, um, you know, anyone other than men um, for a lot of these gangs. Um, and that sort of in itself is, um, you know, it's sexist, it's it's white supremacy. Some gangs, they don't allow black people. Um, a lot of those ideals are upheld. Um, I think, and even even when you look at the Buffalo soldiers, they're not really it's white supremacy in the sense that like they are not seeing themselves as community members they're no longer seeing themselves as mexican as you know i would say not even as american they see themselves as blue as cops and ultimately the people whose lives they value the most are you know First off, they're gang brothers, and then beyond that, they're police brothers. And those are the people that they want to protect and honor above all else. Would you have a number of the murders that have been committed by the deputies, by LASD gangs? Uh, By my estimate, it's at least 19. I covered 19 different uh, killings in my series. And are any of those 19 white people? No, they're all men of color. Mm -hmm. And four of them were suffering um, from a 
mental illness at the time of their um, fatal encounter with LASD. I feel like that also factors into the whole notion of white supremacy of who the target is. Definitely. They're definitely seen as like the disposable people, it seems like. Nicole? And so besides the wayside whiteies, um, the limited Vikings kind of seems to be like, is like something that seems synonymous with white supremacy these days too. And didn't they have, um, I think you said that you grew up around the Linwood Vikings. Do you know more about how they operated? Um, I didn't have any encounters with the Linwood Vikings myself growing up. They were, I guess, like the most, the most discussed um, in my childhood. People, people would say that the Vikings were typically white deputies with bald heads um, and they would target um, young black men mostly. And when I began researching this, this very much um, was corroborated by um, legal filings that I found in the case of, I believe it was uh, Lloyd Polk versus LA County, um, they collected statements from, I believe, over 50 people um, that lived in the Linwood area. 99% of them were people of color. I say 99% because there was actually one white family that was targeted, they believe, as a result of associating with people of color in the neighborhood. And that's very much the same thing that is happening today. Um, most of the targets of these deputies are still people of color living in low-income neighborhoods. Let's talk about Polk again, because I um, I was really interested in reading about how after his lawsuit, he did some ground-level community work, like creating a gang truce in order to fight against the LASD gangs. Can you tell us a little bit about what was happening, um, just like from ordinary people to resist this? Yeah. So in Linwood at the time, there were um, a couple of street gangs that were operating. One was predominantly Black. The other was predominantly um, Latinx. And they were having quite a bit of conflict. But at the same time, a lot of that conflict was sort of being instigated by um, what law enforcement was doing at the time that was really fueling a lot of this conflict. After so Lloyd Polk, he was um, biracial. He was um, both Latino and black, and he was able to. Um, he, he was really popular on the neighborhood. Everyone really loved Lloyd Polk. It didn't matter um, where you were from; um, everyone was cool with him. So he was actually targeted by the Vikings, and he was brutally assaulted, and charged with the crime. And as a result of that, he decided that he had had enough. This was not going to happen anymore. And he went and sought legal advice. And with the help of his attorneys, he was able to go around and speak to everyone in the neighborhood and convince them to give statements about the abuse that they had been suffering at the hands of the Vikings. And in the course of doing that, um, there were some, there were concerns about there being complications because there were, you know, disagreements between um, different groups that were associated with these different um, 
neighborhood gangs, you know, as this sort of happens in gang culture, if there is a conflict with one person, that may lead to conflict with other people um, in your group. But because the neighborhood had decided, um, you know, sort of universally across neighborhood um, associations and gang associations, they wanted to take on the gang that had been targeting all of them, the sheriff's department, they were able with, you know, Lloyd's help to put aside those differences and decide to unite and go after the sheriff's department, which I think is a really beautiful story. Um, Unfortunately, um, Lloyd Polk was murdered and it is alleged that he was murdered by a deputy gang member in a drive-by shooting. That murder still has not been solved, um, but I I reviewed a lot of evidence um, related to that murder, and it does appear that Mr. Polk was killed by a Viking by the name of Lloyd Luna. And what is Luna up to now? He's still collecting a pension from the taxpayers of LA County. So I saw a video, uh, it's like an 18 minute video on YouTube, the murderous police gangs um, that you were in. And one thing that came up there that's sort of interesting, well, obviously they were anonymous, but it was two sheriff um, deputies who were sort of like whistleblowers um, and sort of thinking about that, could you imagine the deputies that perhaps are our sheriffs, but they are not part of gangs. Could you imagine perhaps them being a way that this gets um, blown over? I don't know if that makes sense. I guess I'm just thinking about that and what that means. Cause it was just interesting. Obviously there's a, a there, there's a lot of reasons why they wouldn't come forward, um, you know, a loss of job and like, they're probably scared that they would get killed, but I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. And like, I'm just wondering what, like, you know, your thoughts were on that. Cause it, 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 it would be interesting to, to see something like that, you know, sort of like people within, or do you think they're all just like the same and I'm not the same, but like, or do you think that they're all just afraid to speak up? I've talked to a few um, deputies that have witnessed stuff like this that are still employed at the sheriff's department, um, whistleblowers and people that haven't come forward yet. And you're right. A lot of them are really scared, primarily because they are afraid for their lives or the lives of their loved ones, their children. And of course, like they're afraid of losing their income. Um, You know, a lot of these um, people are either one of two, they're old, older, not old, older, and they've spent, you know, a lot of time at, at the sheriff's department and they can't really start their life over again. So they're concerned about financial losses. Um, others are really young and they worry. It's sort of the same thing. They worry that they won't be able to find another job after after this experience, after being branded a snitch, um, they worry about being able to go out into another field. Will that reputation follow them around? So I I mean everyone that like speaks to me, I, I like I appreciate them um, and I thank them for telling me this stuff. At this point, I don't I, I really don't think that even if they were to come together, they would necessarily have a lot of power just because 
so many people in the department are involved with these gangs in some capacity. It's even the people that I've talked to, some of them have have told me, yeah, I was involved with them, but then it got to be too much. And now I see that this is wrong. So, you know, even if they were to all collectively blow the whistle, I think that, you know, it would be very easy for the department to get rid of them, you know, either by firing or um, paying them off or some other means. Yeah, it's interesting because that's actually something I wanted to ask about. Did any of them ever like leave the gang or just, you know, feel like you just said that it felt that it was too much? Like, I was just wondering if that ever happened, but I guess you already answered that question. So it was definitely something that was on my mind. Yeah, I've, I've heard from people that um, were a part of the gang and left the gang. I've heard from people that were asked to join and said no, and then were pretty much forced out of the department after that. And I've even heard from people um, that are still sort of involved in these gangs in a past, well, in a much less active capacity than, you know, the ones that are going out and shooting people in the back. But yeah, I mean, I would say all of them know that it's wrong in in some way. I, I would say the people that I've heard from that are sort of like passively involved. Their belief is that perhaps these gangs were not dangerous at one point, but that's changed and they have now been taken over by new people that are dangerous. But I mean, I think if you look at just like from a data standpoint, these gangs have always been doing bad things. Um, and it's, it, it's not new that they're nefarious. Yeah, I guess it goes to what you were saying about like the inherent rottenness of LASD. It's not going to be fixed from the inside. Before we um, switch away from ground level resistance and, and families fighting back, I wanted to talk about the other families of recent victims of deputy killings. So you mentioned Andres Guardado, and then there's also... Paul Rea and Anthony Vargas that you mentioned in your series. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's the activism around that looking like? Yeah. Um, so there is a group called Chuck the Sheriff that um, is really actively pushing for the abolishment of the sheriff's department um, as a whole. Um, and they are, Active, very. I see them very active on social media, um, discussing um, the sheriff's um, different uh, assaults, different killings, and different other forms of um, maltreatment at the hands of sheriff's deputies. There is a new group that was recently established called Cancel the Contract AV, which is a group in the Antelope Valley that is advocating for the Antelope Valley to terminate their services with the sheriff's department. And of course, we have an election coming up in June of next year. So I think that in the coming months, we'll see more organizing and activism around um, the election and what's next for the sheriff's department. And just so we know, you mentioned there was one candidate who is not actively complicit with a deputy gang killing. Which one is it so that we know? Yeah, to my knowledge, only one candidate um, has not either been accused of 
associating with a gang or killed a person. Um, and that is a woman by the name of Britta Stein Steinbrenner. And sort of in line with the notion of activism, what role do you see the law playing or potentially playing in, you know, in regards to LASD gangs and perhaps even lawyers, like someone that, um, you know, we're, we're going to law school. So someone that might be uh, thinking about their future, like what role do you see um, like lawyer activism and the law playing? Yeah, I well, on the criminal side, I'd love to see some some of you future lawyers filing criminal charges against these people. I'd love to see a RICO indictment. Um, I think there is ample evidence for that. Yeah, I mean, I heard you mention uh, Tanaka and Baca. I think that what what happened with Paul Tanaka and Lee Baca a few years ago, I mean, that was really just like a nice starting point. I think there is a lot of criminal prosecution that can be done when we were looking at the LA County Sheriff's Department. And as far as civil cases, I think it's really important for civil attorneys to really educate their clients um, when it comes to these things. I learned um, in the course of my reporting that if you plead guilty to a crime, it's very unlikely that you'll get any kind of settlement if there was abuse that happened in the course of your arrest. And a lot of times people will be pressured into pleading guilty because as I said before, a lot of the people they target are low income. So if you put someone that doesn't really have a means to you know, survive in this capital, capitalist system that we have um, in jail and threaten them with years of jail time, which will further enhance um, the difficulty that it takes to survive, you know, they will plead guilty if they say, if you plead guilty, like you can walk out of here tonight. Like a lot of people are going to do that. I think that it's important for civil attorneys to make sure their client understands all of those things. I think it's important for them to understand that, you know, accepting a multi-million dollar settlement may, you know, make it easier for you to survive. And this is a really tough thing to ask of people if you've been targeted by the sheriff's department your entire life. And there's a chance that you can be handed $5 million and you can go start a new life somewhere else where that won't be an issue anymore. I think it's also important to have your client understand that, yes, you may be able to save yourself, but if we don't continue this to trial and make sure everything comes out, this will continue happening. Sometimes I think as a journalist, you know, the value in a civil suit is really what happens at trial, all those filings that I was talking about earlier. That's where a lot of the truth comes out. And even if you lose your case, like that stuff is out there. Um, and it creates a record for that. Um, so hopefully politicians, activists, organizers can do work to prevent that from happening in the legal in the legal sphere. So again, more lawyers working on that, on you know, laws, motions, amendments, that sort of thing. Yeah. So there's actually, you know, or you know, obviously a lot of evidence that can be used and sort of like, I mean, you have a 15 part series, you know, full of evidence and just knowledge about the situation. So why doesn't the DA charge them? Like, why do you think they're not being charged by the DA? Yeah, I, I wish I had like the answer. It's a question I ask myself a lot. 
I don't know why they're not being charged by the DA. I know that the DA, our current DA, George Gascon, used to be a law enforcement officer in LA County. So that may have something to do with it. The fact that DA investigators are in the same union as sheriff's deputies, that might have something to do with it. You know, the law enforcement union doesn't really support Gascon. Um, they pretty famously hate each other, but you know, in our with our last district attorney, they had a fr- very friendly relationship. So we sort of saw how that came into play there. I I, I don't know. Have there, they made any comment ever, like the DA's office, about the LASD gangs? Uh, about the gangs, I'm not so. Sh- I don't. I don't think so. I don't think I saw a comment from them on the Rand report, which is a report that recently came out. That was a survey that was given that confirmed the existence of what they call subgroups, but what we would all recognize as gangs, criminal gangs. Yeah. I mean, there, there are plenty of cases where the DA could charge and there would be an, just the existence of a gang. Um, that's That's been plenty of grounds for charges in the past. I know he got rid of gang enhancements, but I mean, even aside from that, there's, there's plenty of stuff to charge on. Yeah. I, I don't know why. Yeah, it kind of gets to the point of DA complicity, like they're the ones that need sheriffs and and they're the ones that file these charges against the people who the sheriffs brutalize. So it's really frustrating to look into kind of the symbiotic relationship between district attorneys and police. Yeah, and one of the cases that I was researching, there was actually a story about a district attorney who was speaking about the Vikings um, in a trial. And he said in a, I believe it was his closing argument. Yeah, there was an anecdote I heard um, where a deputy district attorney in his closing argument actually held up a pin that was given out to Vikings and said that it was the mark of a basically like stellar stellar police work. Um, If you wore the Viking pin and were a Viking, you were a stellar police officer and that he was proud to be a Viking himself, that he had been invited and he pinned it on his collar. The um, DA was a Viking? Yeah. <gasps> Do you remember his name? I believe he's in my gang database. Oh, I'll take a look at that. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that just goes to show these people are very close together. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if some other district attorneys consider themselves associates of these gangs as well. Yeah, I actually didn't know they were in the same union, but that is eliminating for sure. Um, You talked about the gang enhancement removal that Gascon is doing, which kind of brings me back to this point of reform, abolition, the kind of like the mentalities that underpin these movements. Um, Obviously, removing gang enhancements is a move toward more justice. And I guess what I'm wondering is why do we want to use the word gang with LASD? Like, is that something that could add more stigma to street gangs that are actually in communities who are already very stigmatized? I, I was very intentional about using the word gang because I have seen the word gang and gang injunctions and gang enhancements used to actively make the lives of people I know and care about worse. And I've seen it do devastating damage um, just on a whole when looking at community that I engage with and come from. And I think that that same 
uh, scrutiny isn't given to law enforcement that is engaged in a lot of, well, I was going to say a lot of the same things, but I mean, you know, a lot, a lot of people that are in street gangs aren't really actively involved in criminal acts. They're not actively involved in criminal enterprises, but it's quite the opposite in law enforcement. They are actively involved in both of those things. Um, so I think it's really sort of, you know, redefining what a gang really is. I think that, you know, I use the term because we have seen it so overused in the judicial system and it has been used to punish people of color. I wanted to take that same scrutiny basically and apply it to law enforcement. And I think that when you look at the data and you look at what's happening, they fit the description a lot better than, you know, the neighborhood people that are part of, you know, gangs that we may be more familiar with. Yeah, that's really powerful. Like in the same way that it's indicting the sheriff's department, it's also kind of lifting up communities by pointing out the hypocrisy of using that word against them. So obviously you had your experience during the George Floyd uprising with being shot, but you're also being targeted and surveilled again after your work, right? Yeah. Yeah. I recently found that out. Yeah. I put in, after publishing my series, um, I was advised by a source of mine to do a public records request on any records that had my name. And it took many months to get that back. It's supposed to be completed in 10 days. Um, I got it back in six months. Wow. Yeah. So it was quite the wait, but it was, uh, it was I, well worth the wait to say the least. I discovered that a crime analyst team has been monitoring my social media for quote, potential doxing purposes. We know that the sheriff's department has doxed people in the past. They doxed the county CEO, Sachi Hamai, and she was terrorized to the point that she had to resign from her position as county CEO. And she was given a $1.5 million settlement, which included security guards, which she still has over a year later um, as a result of the sheriff's department doxing her and continually harassing her. So was she also going after them for gang activity? She was just the county CEO. She, she was just doing her job. When you say doxing, you mean like giving... The deputies, your address or? Yeah, leaking my um, personal information. So like my address, my phone number, that sort of thing. Well, my phone number, if you ask me for it, I'll probably give it to you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But definitely not, um, you know, my address, um, where I live with my family, like, no. And how do you continue to do the work knowing that it's actually physically dangerous for you? Well, I do have a bodyguard now. who I am very grateful for. Um, And I don't really, I mean, I don't see how I can stop now. Um, I feel a lot of responsibility and I think I am pretty good at what I do. So I'd like to continue. And it does, it's very fulfilling. It's very fulfilling to see that my reporting appears to have inspired a new wave of engagement on this topic which has been accompanied by different moves, both at the local level as well as the federal. Um, it's nice to see that my reporting has had, you know, impact on 
ongoing litigation that can hopefully, you know, be used by families to get some form of reparation for the loss of their loved one. It, yeah, it's very fulfilling work. So I, I don't really see myself, you know, doing anything else. Of course, I'll still report on other things, but I think this is going to be what I'm doing with most of my time for a very long time. Yeah, it's definitely a magnum opus, like just such a massive work. And I saw that you got the attention of Maxine Waters. Yes, yes. Um, that was really special. I, you know, was really inspired by the work of another journalist, um, investigative journalist by the name of Gary Webb, who uncovered the the plot to um, traffic cocaine into um, South Central Los Angeles to fund a guerrilla war, guerrilla war in Nicaragua. And yeah, reading that reporting, um, I heard about it from Maxine Waters. Um, she read the reporting and took it back to Capitol Hill and was very central to popularizing that work and making it known to the rest of the United States. So hearing her talk about my work in the same way was really quite a moment for me. Yeah, it was very special for me. And you've also sort of set ripples in more everyday communities, like on Instagram, on Villanueva's Instagram lives. I'm seeing a lot of hashtag Google LSD gang comments. Is that something that you were involved with? No, I wasn't. That's that's all the community. And it's been really special to watch that happen. I've never really like seen like a work of reporting inspire something like that, but it's very special. I see stickers around town. I was seeing graffiti and like banner drops. Yeah, it's really it's really special to know that my work has resonated with so many people and engaged them so much on this topic. I mean, that's like really like all you can ask for as a journalist is for people to pay attention to, you know, the issue at hand that you're trying to bring attention to. So it's been, it's been incredibly fulfilling to see the community read the work, engage with the work and begin to you know, start doing the next part, which is, you know, making things better and changing the way the system functions. That's, yeah, it's very special. And and what about keeping the momentum up? I know that your work kind of was born out of the June 2020 protests, but it's been almost a year and a half since then. And it's yeah. still obviously going strong. Yeah. Unfortunately, the sheriff's department hasn't slowed down. They're continuing to kill residents. Um, and the deputy gangs continue to grow and recruit new members. Um, so yeah, there's no shortage of work that I have to do. Um, just earlier this week, I published a story about a killing done by a deputy who has now killed two young black men in South LA and he is still working as a deputy which is very troubling um so yeah as I and there are so many stories like that I have so many tips from people that I need to follow up on um so yeah there's there's much more work to be done and I am going to do it and your work is freely available like I haven't had any paywalls in accessing your work so now I don't believe in paywalls can you tell us more about that and also how you manage that logistically 
Yeah. Um, well, I work with a publisher called Knock for most of these stories, and they are a donation-based community journalism project. They feel the same way, they, way that I do about paywalls. Um, they don't believe in the commercialization of information. Um, we are both of the belief that it's, you know, this is something that needs to be available to everyone. Um, and I will make sure that all of my reporting on this is never behind a paywall and I will continue to make all the, um, you know, court filings, documents and associated things that I find with these stories available for people as well. That is so appreciated. And we'll definitely include knock.la in our show notes so people can donate, but where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Cerise Castle and I'm also on Instagram. If you see anything and you want to shoot me a tip, you can reach out there. Everything is much appreciated.